There is power in your name. God, that you have no rival. Lord, that you have no weakness. God, that that you love us so much that, that despite all of your power and your goodness and your holiness, that you sent your one and only son to die so that we might live victorious. God, I pray that you would move today throughout the entirety of our teaching. Lord, that you would give us a better understanding of your word. Lord, I pray that, that we would not just grow comfort where we are, but God, that we would press in, Lord, to, to the refining truth that, that you are a God that has a lot to say. God, that you are a God that has done a lot before we even existed. Lord Jesus, can we rest in the truth knowing that you are a God of one story and one purpose that was to bring redemption to humanity, Lord? God, we think of our brother Greg this weekend. Lord, as the funeral was on Friday for his brother, God, we, our hearts break for the pain that Greg has been facing this week. Lord Jesus, and specifically, I think of the next few days as, as Greg walks into the reality of not having his brother with him. Lord God, as, as a congregation, we want to lift up Greg and his family to you, Lord, and ask that, that you would be a comfort and a peace. Lord, your word says that you are near to the brokenhearted. God, and I pray that your word and your comfort is so close that it is uh, undeniable. Lord, that you would provide people around him uh, to strengthen and encourage him. Lord, and when he gets back, can we be those people as well? Lord Jesus, we love you, and we ask every single week that you would be about Anchor today. God, that you would be about our conversations, Lord, and that you would have your way in this building. And that, that is no different from this week. We ask those same things. And it's in the precious and holy name of Jesus, the name above all names, that we pray these things. Amen. Well, good morning. Do I have any puzzle lovers in the room? Anybody? All right. So suppose I have a thousand-piece puzzle right here. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> now, actually, Val, would you want to come up here for a second? I promise I have no eggs, okay? <laughs> Just so we're clear. Dwayne would probably kill me. Or laugh. I don't know which one. But, but Val, I have five pieces of that thousand-piece puzzle. Can you tell me what the puzzle is a picture of? A garden. There's green. Could you tell me, like, specific, though? No. No. Okay. Well, okay, fine, fine, fine. Okay, if you're going to be difficult. I aim to please. I have five more pieces. Okay. A horse. All right, well, this is getting exciting. Okay. You have no, no idea? No clue. Nope, nope. None. Oh, maybe some water. Maybe, maybe water. Lily. Maybe it's Monet's water lily. 
wa Monet's water lily and a horse. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I see it. I see yeah. it. All right, all right. Well, we'll give her a round of applause. She was a good sport. I didn't warn her at all, so that's good. Now, suppose that Val was still up here, and I gave her put together the most important pieces of the puzzle, the edge pieces. Okay, and just the edge pieces. Do you think you'd be able to tell what this is a picture of? Probably not. Um, and I would argue that we do the same thing with scripture. Uh, when you are around the church for a few days, you collect a couple puzzle pieces. You maybe collect a story. Um, you might collect some characteristics of God. You might even have some really like solid corner pieces like doctrine and theology. But overall, the picture is kind of confusing. And I actually have a picture up on this, or a picture, a piece up on this stage that would tell you exactly what this puzzle is. The box, right? <laughs> I look at the box and I know exactly what it is. I think it might be a little offensive you thought she was a horse. Um, but, but, <laughs> but, but I know exactly what this picture is because I have looked at the box. So welcome to our new sermon series, Puzzled by the Bible. And I want to look at the box of scripture. I want to look at the biblical meta-narrative, which is just a fancy word for huge story. <laughs> Of scripture. Now I want to do what I like to call a flyby view of the entirety of the Bible. Now you notice when you are flying and you look down and you see all of the land, you can see how it fits together, right? You can see the borders, you can see the houses, and you can see it in a new way. And that's my goal for this series, is that you can fly over scripture at about 30,000 feet and see how it all fits together. And hopefully, by the end of it, your five pieces that you have in your hand, they make a lot more sense. So um, I had a tool that everybody was getting this morning. Uh, you will need that today. On the back side, there is a reading challenge that goes along with this sermon series. My encouragement to you is to keep this, uh, to store it in your Bible, to keep it in your purse, keep it somewhere safe so that you can bring it every single Sunday and help uh, fill it out and figure it out. Make sense? Does anybody need a card? All right, let's pray for this sermon series as we get started. Lord Jesus, so often your scripture is intimidating to us. God, because we don't see the big picture, we see the pieces that we have and that we know and that we're comfortable with. God, I pray for this journey as we look at the box and we see the big picture of scripture. Uh, would you give us the tools and the knowledge and the grace to navigate your holy scripture even better. In Jesus' name, amen. So now before we get started, I have a couple rules of puzzle etiquette. Uh, the first one is that the big picture is crucial. Uh, nobody does a puzzle and puts it all together and then it's blank. You know, if you worked for your life on like a billion piece puzzle just to find out that it's blank, that'd be like the letdown of the century, wouldn't it? So the big picture is critical. The next rule is that every piece is crucial. I think there's a tendency when we unpack this big picture of scripture that we start to neglect the little individual pieces. Well, let me tell you what. Have you ever done a puzzle and you get all the way to the end and you're missing one piece? <laughs> every piece is crucial, right? 
you're flipping over tables and trying to find every single piece. And scripture is just the same. Uh, Often than not, we find that the words of Jesus in the New Testament will actually directly relate to some like obscure book of the Bible that we have maybe never read. And it helps us to understand what Jesus was saying. And so every piece is crucial. And the last rule is that the beauty of the puzzle is in the whole picture, not in the individual pieces. See, when we can look back and see the puzzle for what it is, that's when we experience beauty. That's when we experience, ah, light bulbs go off. And over the course of this series, I'm going to challenge you to not focus on just one piece. Because the reality is, is that talking about the meta-narrative of Scripture, we have to talk about some pretty big pieces, like creation and the dreaded topic of the end times. And, and it will be a tendency to think, if I can focus on this one, maybe one that I don't understand or one that I don't like, you might miss the bigger picture. So I want you to allow yourself to step back and look at the picture, look at the puzzle box and see what God was up to. Make sense? All right, so uh, the Bible says that it is the inspired word of God. And over the next few weeks, I'm not setting out to defend that. Uh, We're not going to put the Bible on trial. I simply want to define it. And so that tool that you have, if you flip it around, there's a puzzle on it. And that's going to become pretty key to this whole story. Uh, this, this story is divided into two parts, and that would be the arrows that are on the side of your diagram. Now, you guys all know these two parts. They are the Old Testament and the New Testament. Perfect. All right. <laughs> uh, testament actually can be defined as agreement or contract. So if you want to, you can write old agreement. Maybe old agreement with God. And the New Testament is the new agreement with God. And so a couple things you have to know about the Bible is that it's about 66 books long, uh, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. There are about 40 different authors within Scripture, And the book itself was actually written over the span of 1,500 years. And the beauty in those numbers, in 66 books, in 40 different authors, in 1,500 years, is that even though all of those people, this story remains one story. Now, if we have any doubt that this is the inspired word of God, play telephone once. Right? What starts with one person as Lindsay loves french fries ends ten people later like Lindsay is cross-eyed. Okay? <laughs> and that happens. But over the course of all of these authors and all of these years, we find that it is one story. And so I'm going to put up on this board some of the big movements of Scripture. And so at the beginning, we start with God and man in the garden. This is uh, our relationship with God at the most purest point, when man was righteous and before sin had entered. Moving up, we find sin and Satan. 
are introduced. This is already in Genesis 3. We have the snake in the garden. Moving up the line, we have the world is judged and purified. Now, most of us know this as the flood. This is when Noah and the ark and the animals got on two by two. Uh, this happened when God looked at creation and saw that they were not like him and saw that they were doing some terrible things and he judges and purifies the world with water. Moving up to the next one, the world is united. And this is in Genesis 10 through 11, where we find the Tower of Babel, uh, where, where the nations get together and they decide that they are going to govern themselves, that they are going to build a tower to reach God. And what happens is, is that God looks at it and he confuses them and says, no, 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 this is not how that works. And that's where we get our different languages. And following up that, we've got the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, what God called these people very often is a label that they rarely lived up to, which was God's holy people. Now that's the first old agreement of scripture. Uh, it goes all the way from God and man in the garden to the temple acts of the Jew Jewish system. And at the pinnacle of all of creation, we find our guy, Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and he puts into place a new agreement between God and man. And if you're writing, just pause for a second. This is beautiful because what we find in Scripture is that Jesus puts in a new agreement and it mirrors the old agreement in reverse order. So instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, we have 12 disciples and the church, which God lovingly calls God's holy people. So welcome to church, God's holy people. And if you needed to, to know, like, maybe on a mall map or a hiking map, you are here. You are here in the age of God's holy people. After that, in Revelations, we see that the world is united again. And there are a lot of different theories and suggestions on how this happens. I promise you, I don't know how it's going to happen. But I just know what scripture says. After that, it says that the world is judged and purified again. In, in the Old Testament, it happened through water. In Revelations, it talks about this happening through fire, where everything that isn't devoured by the fire is the holy things that God has here on earth. And last, or next is sin and Satan, exit. Finally, uh, the tyranny of Satan is demolished by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the story ends with God and man in paradise.
See, when we see the puzzle box, when we see the outside, we notice that our God is incredibly on purpose. Uh, He has known from the beginning of humanity what he was up to. And, And he knew it on time, on purpose, and incredibly intentionally. So today, before we get incredibly overwhelmed by the entirety of Scripture in one graphic, we're going to look at three truths that God unpacks here in the first four movements of Scripture. Three truths that he locks into humanity and all of creation within those first four sections. And the first one that he unpacks is that God is without equal. Do we need some more time writing? Yes, let's go back. Can we go back? <laughs> so the last two are sin and Satan exit the world and God with redeemed man in paradise. So the first thing that God locks in of these first four sections is that God is without equal. Uh, in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. Now, when I was in college, I had a Pentateuch professor who said to me, Lindsay, if you can master the first four words of the Bible, the rest of it will make complete sense. If you can lock in that in the beginning, God, the rest of it makes sense. And what he meant to say by that was that in the beginning, if I believe that there is a sovereign God that created everything that I see, virgin birth, not that big of a deal, right? Uh, Resurrection, that's kind of in his wheelhouse. You know, miracles, that's no big surprise. If I can lock in, in the beginning, God, then man, I'm set. And he said, Lindsay, you're going to have years to unpack and pull apart and understand the context of Scripture. But if you can settle that in the beginning, God, that's the cornerstone of everything else. Now, we don't get to be in this part of Scripture very often, so I think it's perfect for like a classic creation joke, right? Um, So a few scientists were sitting around, and they decided that they don't need God anymore. So one guy looked at the other guy, and he's like, who's going to tell God, though? And so they draw straws. And the loser who got the loser straw has to go and tell God. So he goes to God, and he says, hey, God, uh, this is kind of awkward, but me and the guys were talking, and like, we can clone people now, and like, we can do miracles, and like, we, we can look at space, like, just kind of decided we don't need you. And you're well overdue for a vacation anyway. (laughs) And God says, oh, okay, cool, yeah, I understand. Um, But before you go, I'd like to have a little bit of a contest. And he says, okay, that's fine, that's fair. And he goes, I want to, you and I, let's create a man. You create a man, I'll create a man, we'll see what happens. He says, oh, that's fine. And he said, before you get started, I want to kick this Old Testament style, you know? I created Adam out of the dust of the earth, right? And he says, oh, that's fine, that's fine. And the scientist bends over to pick up some dirt, and God says, wait, 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 get your own dirt. (laughs) 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 
See, <laughs> see so creating something out of nothing is a God-sized thing. Uh, it is divine. It's beautiful. And so often, more often than not, we find ourselves tangled up in this debate if we can choose God or we can choose science. When the reality is, is that God created science. Uh, he created the intricacies that we get to see. And, and the uh, sad part of that is that when we are in science, we end up celebrating the person that finds them rather than the person that created them. You know, uh, God made cells. Well, I found them. So what? <laughs> and how ridiculous does that sound? That's like you telling me that you are on the same level as Einstein because you found his book on the internet. You know, it doesn't make any sense. But God is without equal. And to take that a step further, creating something out of nothing and giving it a free will, that requires a God-sized heart. He created Adam out of the dust of the earth. He forms him intimately. And then he gives him the choice to follow him. Problem is, is that we think we can be equal to God. Uh, we think that we can be like him. And you see that all throughout the first four segments of the Bible. What did the serpent promise Eve? If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And she does. And sin and Satan enter and are introduced into the world. The world is judged and purified because we try in our best efforts to be equal to God. And he says no. After that, the Tower of Babel, the world is united. And we think that we can govern ourselves and we can solve all of our problems and we can be like God. And it blows up in our face. To take it a step further, like spoiler alert, next, the 12 tribes of Israel practice the law and try to be perfect, try to be like God. And you guessed it, it blows up in their face. Creation for the first four parts of the story, we come face to face with this reality that there is nothing like our God. And we still struggle with it. You know, we, we still struggle with it. Like, we want to be in control. We want to have all of the pieces. And we want to know that we have utter control. And we sure as heck don't want somebody to tell us what to do. If you don't believe me, how many of you guys hate being told what to do? Right. Yeah, there's like 65% of you that didn't do that. Why? Because you don't like being told what to do. Right? You're like, I am not your performing monkey, Lindsay. I'm not going to be a puppet that raises my hand. And God, he tries so hard to tell us what to do after giving us free will. Why? Well, that's the next truth. Sin leads to death. And I can't even imagine what it's like to be God who creates Adam out of dust. Gives him the choice to love him. And says, please don't touch that. You will die. And what do we do? Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to, make it and take, or to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. God gives Adam and Eve everything that they could ever need, including a choice. Let's see what happens. Genesis 3. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, tree, the fruit in the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her, her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. So there's a problem nestled in this story that still exists today, and that problem is, is that we don't believe sin is dangerous. Like, level with me here for a second. We know that sin is out there. We know what God calls sin. But if we're real, we don't think it's that big of a deal, do we? Like, honestly, you know, my mom might look at me differently, but like, it's not that bad. And I would say that we treat sin like my little friend up here. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Snake, who is not any stretch of the imagination real, or Lindsay would not be touching it, okay? Uh, <laughs> Mr. Snake is a lot of fun, and we treat sin like this rubber snake, you know? Uh, we, we mess with it, we play with it, you know, we might bring it out on the weekends, we might hide it, hide it in our sister's sock drawer, you know? We walk up to people and go, Boo, you know? Those kinds of things. Let me tell you what, I ordered this, and it was in a package sitting at my front door for a very long time because I needed to work up the courage to open it. Um, but we treat sin like this rubber snake because at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. At the end of the day, it's still just a disgusting rubber snake. Now, this rubber snake is supposed to look like a black mamba. Anybody heard of the black mamba before? Um, I was doing some research this week, and... I, I've seen snakes before in the zoo from a distance. Um, I've seen that one Harry Potter movie, and I don't trust them ever since. Um, but but I, I was doing some research on the Black Mamba, and I actually have a video of what this thing looks like. And it's going to play, and I'm sorry if you guys like mice. Um, I'm sorry. But I want to read some of the wonderful facts of this snake. Okay, Black Mamba is one of the fastest snakes in the world. Uh, it's the world's second deadliest snake. Black mambas have heads that are shaped like coffins. Yikes. Um, they are speedy. They can run faster than any human can actually run, uh, averaging speeds up to 12 miles an hour. <laughs> when threatened, black mambas will actually stand up to about six feet tall. So I'm about five and some change, so about this tall of a snake. And they will rear themselves up and they will strike if they feel threatened. Okay. Um, two drops of this black mamba's venom will kill you. And it actually incapacitates you because it takes out your central nervous system. So you don't actually die from the venom, you die from suffocation. Uh, this venom has been known to kill a person within seven to ten minutes. 
seven to 10 minutes. Yikes. All right, we can stop that now. Um, and I'm just going to need to get something out of my system. <laughs> right? Like, yuck! Okay? Uh, so disgusting. Uh, my, my mentor, actually, he was in Zambia, and he said that he saw a, a black mamba. And so this led me to texting Dwayne, our lovely tech director. And I asked him, because he lived in Zambia for a while, I said, hey, Dwayne, did you ever see a black mamba when you were in Zambia? He said, Dad has a picture of me holding one. And I said, no, seriously? And he said, yes. I said, can you find it? I'm using it for a sermon illustration on Sunday. He said, okay. <laughs> I said, how did you hold it? What is it, defanged? And he said, I held it in my hands, and it still had its fangs, Lindsay. I said, well, I am never messing with you again. <laughs> and he said, it was about 10 feet long. I said, I read those things can kill you in 15 minutes. He said, actually, 7 to 10. And I said, good grief. That's what nightmares are made out of, people. And he said to me, did I forget to mention, it was also very much dead. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. um, to which I said, I feel like I just fell for the next level dad joke of the century. And he said, mission accomplished. But I think that we treat sin like a dead or rubber snake. Uh, we treat sin like it's never going to do any harm to us. We treat it like it does not matter. Uh, my mentor, when he saw one in Zambia, he asked his tour guide, why are these so dangerous? And he said, because the black mamba, when it rears up, it instinctively strikes for your heart. Sin does the same thing. It will strike for your heart. It will kill your marriage it will destroy your family. It will ruin your calling, your gifting, and it will destroy your life. Hosea 4, verse 6, it says, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. See, we lack knowledge about sin, and not because God didn't tell us. See, God never lied to us. He always said that sin would trick you. He always said to run from it. He always said that it would lead to death and destruction. And I might say this, and you might nod and agree, but the irony is, is that we still find a way to play with it and pretend like it's not that big of a deal. See, from Genesis 3 to 11, we see humanity trying to get back to this relationship with God because sin has destroyed it. So in Genesis 11, we come face to face with a sobering reality, which brings us to our last point. We are to blame. Now when I say that, sin is to blame, but we are all sinful. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'll be honest with you, I hate this reality. I hate it because I hate death. I, I don't even think hate covers that. I hate addiction, and I hate brokenness, and I hate sickness. I hate it. 
But humanity and the sin we commit, we are to blame. In our world, we look around and a lot of the hardships that we face are things that we have produced. Hardships that we face are things that come back on us. Uh, one of the hardships that uh, everybody faces at one time or another is jury duty, okay? Uh, let me, anybody get called for jury duty anytime soon? Yeah. Um, I got summoned for jury duty recently, actually. Um, I got it a few months ago. Uh, and I got the summons, and I kind of groaned because I felt like it was the thing I was supposed to do. Um, but I was kind of excited because I watch a lot of Law & Order SVU. <laughs> so I was like, I get to be a part of it. And so I got excited. I put the summons on my fridge, and I wait a couple months because it's a few months away. And the date on it said April 5th. And I said, solid, it's not April yet, I'll be fine. Oh dear. And April 5th rolls around and Lindsay is only God knows where, uh, doing errands, you know, maybe doing some stuff for the church, getting stuff set up for Sunday, anywhere but the courthouse. And so then a couple days roll around, April 6th, April 7th, April 8th, April 9th, April 10th, April 11th comes around, and I'm sitting in my living room with two of my good best friends, Kurt and Elizabeth, and they, one of them mentions, how did jury duty go? And all of the color goes from my face, and I charge for the fridge, and I rip off the summons, and I look at the date, and it says, April 9th and Lord bless them, they laughed at me, okay? <laughs> he is laughing now, but they were like, oh, Lizzie, it's okay. You just might have a bench worn out. That's no big deal. You know, oh, no big deal. <laughs> He's like, oh, no, it's fine, it's fine. You might just have a big fine. It's okay. You know, I think records are erased every few years. It's fine. And I'm like getting seething mad, seething mad. And I'm thinking, why didn't they text me? Why did they even ask me to do this? Do they know what I'm going through? Like, what in the world is going on with this stupid summons? And I was livid. And it was all my fault. <laughs> it was all my fault. Like, many of us are mad at God. How did he do that? Why did he put me through this? You know, I'd believe in God if fill in the blank. But have we ever stopped to think that maybe, just maybe, we're not the only one with a case against God. And that actually God has a case against us. Uh, maybe he has a case against us for ruining his paradise, for choosing to live against him, for choosing death and destruction, when all along he has said, don't. And for continually going back to this, maybe, just maybe, we owe him an apology. Now, El Paso Municipal Court, it has a case against me. And I did it to myself. You want to know how that story ends? Come back next week. <laughs> because Genesis 11 ends with us in incredible need, not knowing what's going to happen next. So I'm going to invite the worship team up here and I want to ask you to wrestle with this question as we close today. Which one of these truths is most unsettling to you? Is it the fact that God is without equal? 
Is it, a, is it the fact that he is God that created everything that you see? Is it that sin leads to death? Do you find yourself playing with a deadly thing in this world? Or is it the fact that we are to blame? That, that sin requires Jesus to give us redemption? Now we're going to worship, and I'm going to challenge you to, to reflect on that question. And if that means that you need to write some stuff down, or if you need to talk it out with somebody else, that's fine. Or if it means that you need to join in with worship with us. Either way, that's perfect. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much that you are incredibly on purpose. Lord, that you showed us the overall picture of your truth and your redemption. God, I pray that if we find ourselves this morning playing with sin, God, that you would give us the strength and the courage and the grace to walk away. Lord, if we find ourselves resisting what you tell us to do, God, could we fully embrace that this morning by the grace of God and by the work of your Holy Spirit? Father God, you are without equal. We sang about that this morning. You have no rival. You have no equal. God, you reign over it all. Lord, would you help us to see the bigger picture over the next few weeks? God, this story of the Bible, it ends in incredible need, where we need you. Lord Jesus, maybe some of us are just coming to grips with the fact that we need you. God, can we embrace that again? It's in Jesus' name.